The Macro View, Episode 40. All right, everyone. Welcome to the fourth and final episode of uh, of our series on how to value an investment. So tonight we're going to be discussing risk and volatility. So I want to start out by disclosing that risk and trade-offs in the investment world are the only constants. Anytime you make an investment or decide on one investment as compared to another, there's a risk and a trade-off involved. Even if you're solely deciding to invest in a single option, there's a trade-off between consuming now and consuming later, and there's a risk that you may lose some of your, your money through the investment, or there's the risk that if you don't invest and you can just consume now, that your consumption may not satisfy the ends that you intended. Your consumption may be later looked back, back on uh, as an error. And the investment option you may see later on, the one that you decided not to allocate to and use the capital that you're going to allocate to it as money to consume now, you may see that that investment option actually rose in value and you may end up with a sour taste in your mouth by not jumping on top of the opportunity that you were going to take to invest in that company or asset or fund or whatever it may be. And the fact is, is that investing is risky, but not vest, not investing at all is just as risky, if not riskier, if you intend or plan on retiring one day. You know, the question isn't whether you should take no risk or some risk. There's nothing in life that's risk-free. Not even so-called risk-free debt securities issued by the federal government are truly risk-free. So herein lies the topic of tonight. And given that risk is constant in investment and in life, and given that markets are unpredictable, how can investors at least get a good idea of the level of risk that they're going to be taking if they decide to pile some money into a specific company or a fund or a piece of real estate or whatever it may be? There are some measures that can help you to judge the level of risk you may end up taking, though they are imperfect. And tonight we're going to discuss what they are, their usefulness, their flaws, when and where to use them, and much, much more. And we're going to dive right into that after we get back from this quick break. All right, folks. So I know most, if not all of my listeners are big believers in the free market. Some of my listeners may, from time to time, find themselves stumped by a statist. That's got to stop today, folks. We cannot let them embarrass us with pro-government intervention bumper sticker taglines and anti-free market memes. We need every single one of you to be able to clearly, concisely, and convincingly burn the statist strawman. There's a resource for that. It's Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. You can sign up today, and they have three different levels. Basic, Basic Plus, and Master. With the Master membership in particular, you'll gain the equivalent knowledge of if you were to take a PhD program in libertarian thought if there were such a thing at any of the various youth indoctrination centers that we call universities. So go and sign up today and begin taking courses such as an introduction to logic, the history of economic thought, Austrian economics step-by-step, John Maynard Keynes' system and its fallacies, a ton of U.S. and Western civilization history courses, freedom's progress, the history of political thought, and much, much more. To learn more, go to macroviewnews.com and click on the link in the top right corner titled Liberty Classroom. Once you've completed the master course, you're guaranteed to be better prepared to help me spread the logic of liberty. Okay, we're back. So let's dive right into it. 
So what is risk? Often in the investment business, and my, my personal opinion incorrectly, risk is just simply defined as volatility. There's an issue with this, however. It, it doesn't really give a full picture. You know, if, you're, if you're buying a share of stock, you, you only really care about the downside volatility. That is the, the average downward moves and the average difference between the actual downward moves as compared to the average. And for this, you can either use downside variance or the downside standard deviation, which would be the downside variance squared. Now, there's another issue. If you're planning on holding over the long term, you need to know how standard deviation changes over time, how downside standard deviation changes over time. And you need to understand both the short term and the long term volatility of a specific asset that you're looking to invest in. Even then, volatility during crisis events tends to spike way higher than the averages. So measuring risk just solely based on volatility can be somewhat complicated, yet the entire investment industry has built their risk models around constant volatility theories that fail when market makes, markets make big directional moves. You may also need to understand the volatility of the fundamentals that investors use to value a company, such as their sales, their expenses, their earnings, their capital expenditures, and much more. Measuring or even assist, assessing risk is a difficult task. Models can only go so far as to measuring the risk of a company. Qualitative factors can help. And in a couple episodes from now, we're going to be discussing a movement, a private governance and transparency movement that's helping investors to more effectively and efficiently and accurately measure qualitative risks. And even this, however, is not perfect. So with all the difficulties of measuring risk, why even try? Well, it is important to understand if you want to try and price the cost to hedge out a certain amount of risk through options markets, or if you want to try to understand what type of volatility you're going to be dealing with and what you should expect, what's abnormal levels of volatility. That way you can kind of get a sense of what's going on in the markets. Now for listeners, unless you've chosen uh, short-term trading as a career and you enjoy the thrill and have, you know, have had experienced success and you can deal with long periods of drawdowns while you live off of savings and you can survive through such long periods, unless you have those characteristics, I recommend not making short-term investments. If you are though, it's also important to understand volatility in that scenario. Uh, you really do need to really understand the volatility of a company and, and what you're likely to expect, what the ups and downs are, are kind of gonna be like. So from that perspective, if you're gonna be short-term trading, it is important to really understand vol volatility. So having said that, if you're going to invest in a company, put in the time to really understand what you're getting into. And then when you do invest, deal with the volatility and hold it for the long term. More importantly than measuring the risk of a single company, quite frankly, is measuring the risk of your portfolio and diversifying your portfolio, both at the company sector industry level as well as diversifying asset classes. So holding some commodities, some debt, some equity, some real estate, if, if possibly, you know, diversifying geographically, the latter of which the best way to do is through low cost index funds here in the US. Otherwise, investing in international markets can become complicated and the tax uh, consequences in some countries don't have double taxation of US investors, some countries do. So you really have to kind of understand all of that. Investing through some sort of low cost index fund, an ETF or a mutual fund 
is typically the best way to to uh, to gain access to international markets if you want to do it yourself or find an international markets expert to invest your money internationally for you. Now, if you want to measure standard deviation, the best way is simply to do Excel. I could go through the actual formula and I will post the actual formula for standard deviation on tonight's show page at macroviewnews.com. But frankly, it involves the summation of averages and differences of averages. And to walk listeners through it without the visual, will put many of my listeners to sleep. And you know, I'm assuming some of you all are driving right now. So we really don't want to be responsible for any accidents out there on the road because we're sitting here talking about boring mathematical formulas. So I'll put that all on the show page tonight and you can go check it out. Now, when we get back from this next quick break, we're going to discuss one more risk measurement of which you can calculate fairly easily in Excel or a similar spreadsheet app. And then we'll close out tonight's episode discussing portfolio level risk and risk diversification. So we'll be right back after this quick break. All right, everyone. So I've got another great resource for those of you that are saying, Andrew, you know, I'd love to do Tom Woods's master level courses on Liberty Classroom, but I really don't have the time for that right now. I need a crash course on Liberty and Austrian economics. Maybe you're saying to yourself, you know, Donald Trump was just inaugurated and my parents or my wife or my husband or someone else I love is way over the moon. All their free market so-called convictions were tossed out. They threw the baby out with the Obamas. And now that there's a Republican in the White House, that's all that matters. I need something fast. I need something that'll get me caught up in a day or at most in a week. Well, folks, I've got you covered. If you want to learn more in a single day or in a week about economics than most people will learn in a lifetime, you're going to want to head over to Mises.org and check out their absolutely free Mises Bootcamp. In five quick lessons, you'll learn more than enough to take down any of the various absurd defenses of government interference in the economy that your Republican loved ones may launch over the next four to eight years to justify the big spending and big government and all sorts of other interferences, tariffs, whatever may come about under the Trump administration. For your convenience, you'll find a link directly to the registration page for the Mises Boot Camp on tonight's show page. Stop waiting and harness the knowledge that you need today. Okay, we're back. So another common measure of risk is value at risk, or sometimes referred to as VAR, V-A-R. And uh, if you ever see like on anything related to finance or investing, you may see it abbreviated as a capital V, lowercase a, and then a capital R, VAR stands for value at risk. Value at risk does use volatility of a company or more sophisticated risk models will use a factor correlations. Now, some models also use what is known as a Monte Carlo simulation, which if you've ever taken a statistics course, you'll be generally familiar with. Now, the first measure of value at risk and the one which I will share on tonight's show page is and how to calculate it in Excel is the parametric VAR. Now, while this is the least accurate measure of risk, it does offer some insight into how and over what period volatility could potentially affect your portfolio. So again, I'll post the Excel formula for parametric VAR on tonight's show page, which is macroviewnews.com. To calculate in any efficient manner a VAR based on a multi-factor regression, and by efficient, I mean timely manner, you will need a software program that has risk models built into it, or you'll need to 
be very familiar with statistics and build your own risk models. Now, if you're a serious investor and you'd like to be able to do scenario analysis based on this type of risk model, there's a fairly, relative to other risk modeling programs, a fairly inexpensive program called Hidden Levers. Uh, it's Hidden Levers kind of, and it sounds a little bit weird, sounds like saying uh, the back room at your local sex shop, but it is a pretty good program. And uh, it really aims at sort of the individual investor and the smaller advisory shop, uh, you know, financial advisory uh, firms. So it's a little bit lower price point than you'll find in a lot of risk modeling softwares. Um, so Monte Carlo simulation, again, requires software to calculate. A Stata for students, if you're a student, works really well, or if you know anybody who's a student who's willing to let you use their email, and it's fairly inexpensive for students. If you've taken a stats class, a statistics class, uh, you've probably used Stata before. I think it's the most popular. Um, there's also SAS, and I think there's one more, one other program called R. Um, I haven't used the, the latter. Uh, I've used both Stata and SAS. Now, I'm not going to go into much detail on any of these programs because, frankly, they're not paying me to do so. So why should I promote them? Uh, we are capitalists here after all. But... Lastly, I do want to discuss standard portfolio risk measurement and managing portfolio level risks. So the standard portfolio level risk measurements are pretty much the same as a single asset measurement. Typically, it's measured in terms of volatility, downside volatility, again, being a more accurate measure of, of potential loss uh, or expected loss during a downward market. There are also some risk adjusted return measures, but we're probably not going to get to them tonight. Um, I'll have to do a, uh, an episode, a future episode, just discussing risk-adjusted returns and what some of the benefits and what some of the short, shortcomings of such metrics are. The key por for portfolio-level risk and managing portfolio-level risk is risk diversification. So how do you diversify risk? Simply, you hold assets that are not correlated to one another. So for example, gold typically has a negative correlation to the stock market. Not always, but typically it has a tendency to have a negative correlation to the stock market. Same thing with cash or, or dollars. Dollars and gold are seen as safe havens. So when markets sell off, investors move their capital into these assets, driving the value of them upward. Now farmland, and there are a couple of farmland real estate investment trusts out there that you could invest in if you don't have enough money to just go and outright buy farmland. Um, but farmland is typically negatively correlated to the broader stock market as well. It's typically viewed as a safe haven. So during downward markets, people tend to shift capital out of the stock market and go and buy uh, assets such as farmland, timberland as well. But timberland is a little bit more difficult to value. But farmland, you can get a good value. You can find good values on it. You can use a cap rate to value it and uh, you can lease it out. You can have it as you can build a little home there, put a trailer there, and you can have it as a uh, you know second home or vacation home. My family has owned a farm going back about 200 years that my grandmother's father homesteaded, and it's you know one of our family's most sacred assets. Um, you know, being our family, hopefully for uh, the rest of history. So, energy and utility companies and technology and manufacturing industries tend to have a low correlation to one another, not necessarily negative, but a low correlation to one another, although it could go negative at some, some times. And these are 
for somewhat obvious logical reasons, if the price of oil and gas goes down, energy companies make less money off of their product, whereas technology and manufacturing companies, both energy intensive, spend less money on energy and tend to see their margins grow a little bit and vice versa would be true as well. If energy costs go up, the energy companies and utility companies tend to make a little bit more money. Their their margins grow a little bit and at the same time, technology and manufacturing companies tend to see their energy costs rise and therefore their margins shrink a little bit. So commodities, now now I do want to make disclosure, a lot of times technology companies, actually probably not so much technology companies except some of the biggest, but a lot of times manufacturing industries, uh, companies in the manufacturing industry try to do their best to hedge. Um sort of hedge oil risk or, or energy energy risks that they have. So they try to fix the price and that way they can make better decisions or at least predict their you know, predict the prices that they're going to be paying further out. Now, another great example is airlines and energy, energy prices, right? So if energy commodities spike in price, airlines typically tend to see their profit margin shrink and vice versa and also try to do their best to hedge out some, if not all, of their uh, potential uh, risk of, of higher costs in the energy market. And commodities typically in general have been viewed as safe havens, but when you've had significant market crashes, so like the one in 08 or 09, the correlations between commodities and stocks, except for gold and silver, uh, correlation spiked. So that means that you weren't getting great diversification. Commodities were selling off as well. The same is true with real estate. Historically, there have been economic downturns or stock market crashes in which real estate was viewed as a diversifier. But when the real estate bubble bursting causes a banking panic, you end up with correlation spiking and you end up with little diversification, if any. So I'll show you how to calculate correlations in Excel as well. It's really, really simple stuff. And I'll put that on tonight's show page as well. There are issues with all of these measures. So all of these measures are backward looking. They cannot look forward and they cannot predict the future. They're not hard and fast rules. They simply to help investors to assess risks and to make decisions. Financial markets and financial market participants and their preferences are just as dynamic as consumer markets are. And consumers change their mind all the time. Investors change their mind and change their preferences all the time as well. They're very dynamic. And participants drive, not numbers, but participants drive the change in value of companies. If, if a bunch of people are selling the stock of one company, selling shares in the stock of, a one, of one company and buying it in another, the value of the company they're selling in is going to necessarily go down or be lower than it otherwise would be and vice versa for the company that they're buying. If there are fire sales in assets for whatever for whatever reason, and there aren't enough buyers or new investors are reluctant to come in because they feel as though the market has further down to go, then you're going to see market sell-offs. So there's some things that, that statistics and measures, you know, formulas, they're just not going to tell you. And you know, human actions actually drive market values and subjective preferences of, of humans drive market, market values as well. So it, this is really, uh, you know, why I stay out of prediction business. You know, there are no two people that are exactly alike. 
You can generally gauge market sentiment, but that general gauge could be disastrously wrong, and especially in the short term. Now, when I say I stay out of the prediction business, I stay out of the prediction business in the short term. I'm happy to say that in general, global wealth will grow over the next 30 years, absent a major war or major government interventions and nationalization of assets and major government interventions such as continuing regulatory costs that, that cripple entire industries. Having said that, we don't know if, if we may see somebody like a Bernie Sanders get in and when he implements all of his massive redistribution and companies are going out of business, calling for greed, you know, calling out, you know, calling or blaming greed for people that are now struggling to be able to go and buy go and buy goods and services that they're easily able to buy before when spike, prices spike and you have shortages and then he blames greed and like they did in Venezuela and they go and nationalize the assets and then once they nationalize the assets, they're replacing the market, the market incentives with the bureaucratic incentives. We all know how that's going to work. We've seen how it's worked in every other country on earth that's adopted those policies. That is possible here in the U.S. Uh, it is possible. I, I don't put it past the American voter to vote somebody in like a Bernie Sanders because most American voters are economically illiterate. We don't teach economics in school. Some people maybe get the class. I think that I was, had a, I took a economics class in the last semester of my last year in high school. And I took some economics courses in, in, in college. And even then you get flawed economics, you get state propaganda not real economics. So all of that, I, I stay out. I try to stay out of the prediction business. I generally feel as though over the next 30 years, markets will go up. You know, how significantly that depends on way too many factors to really determine. I do feel as though as well, sometime within the next 10 to 15 years, because of the policies that we've seen implemented over the last, you know, and, and possibly even, even sooner and really likely probably sooner than later, because of policies that we've seen implemented over the last 15, 20, 30 years, and going back all the way, you could even say all the way back to the 40s and all the way back to the beginning of the Federal Reserve, there's likely to be a market correction. And that market correction, because of the 0% interest rates forever and all the quantitative easing and all the, the uh, propping up of asset prices through asset purchasing by the Fed, you could have a significant crash sometime soon. There also is a ton of money on the sidelines. If regulations get repealed significantly, if corporate tax tax rates come down, and if personal tax rates come down, you also could see private investment drive the economy further, uh, you know, f further ahead, and therefore drive markets further ahead. So it, it's really there are way too many factors to be able to pinpoint and say this is what's going to happen and this is when it's going to happen. In general, we're going to have business cycles because. We have a Federal Reserve that manipulates the interest rate, and we have a government that heavily intervenes into almost every sector in the entire economy. So with that said, investors should understand the nature of investing. They should understand the qualitative factors of a company. They should understand economic policy. They should understand some of the quantitative factors that investors look at to determine whether or not they're going to make an investment and how investors tend to look at those factors, which is what we've been discussing over the past four episodes. Now, I want to leave everybody with this. When investing, basic idioms and common sense can go a long way. Okay, 
Never put your eggs in one basket. Pigs get slaughtered. Never risk money you can't afford to lose. These are all just very basic cliche pieces of investment advice, but all of the best investors in the world would demonstrate them to be true and would back up that they're some of the best pieces of investment advice that you could get. Diversify your portfolio. When you've had significant gains, take some off the table and, and eliminate some of the risk uh, that, that you've got rolling on in the market and never risk money that you can't afford to lose. You've got to realize that investing involves risk and you very well could lose money. You could make an investment that doesn't work out and you could lose money. Um, you know, I, I'd also add to some of those. I'd add to some of those. Be patient. You know, I, I'd say that all the worst investors in the world, which you never really hear of the worst investors in the world. Nobody ever talks about them. Typically, they violate one or more of these basic pieces of advice and this common sense. Now, there's one more thing you can do. If you model your diversified portfolios around common benchmarks, you can hedge, though not perfectly, you can hedge some of your risk. So hedging will also necessarily limit some of your upside because it'll cost you some money if you're using options. And if the negative event never occurs, that which you're hedging against, then you'll experience some losses on the hedge that will offset some of the gains. Strategic hedging with options and other derivatives can make a lot of sense at times. So if you're worried about upcoming market events, if you're worried that you may get a major sell-off, it may make sense to pay the price of hedging. The key is to have patience. If you're a beginning investor, don't worry too much about hedging. Don't worry about the short-term risks. Don't worry if you make an investment that seems like it's not working out right now. Have patience. Have a long-term investment horizon and take the time to get to know the companies and the assets that you're buying. Do your due diligence. Don't let risk paralyze you, but don't let the prospects of reward get the better of you either. There's a balance that needs to be had. Now, through the last four episodes, I really hope listeners uh, have, have learned something. I hope that I've laid a strong foundation and knowledge of how investment inv professionals value investments, both debt and equity, and how they look at risk, the shortfalls of both, and the need for diversification, the need for qualitative assessments, the need for personal judgment, the need for patience and stick to itedness. All of those things are common among the world's best investors. So if you want to be successful in, in, at investing, you need to have these characteristics. Lastly, if you find yourself trigger shy, just not willing to take the risk on your own, or trigger happy, where you're just taking way too much risk and you're buying way too quickly without doing your due diligence when making investments, there are financial and investment professionals for a reason, folks. There are actively managed funds for a reason. There are index funds for a reason. And one of the greatest lessons in Thomas Sowell's basic economics is the value of trust in his stories of different cultures and their tendency to succeed or not succeed as compared to each other. One of the key factors that he finds is that those that are successful were able to develop and trust others. And often they worked together as a community and trusted others in their community, but they had a, a deep level of trust for the people that they dealt, dealt with in business. Now, even at a time with no communication devices and when investing in a, somebody who's going to 
go get some foreign goods to trade when they come back to market, when that could take years long journeys to four far away lands on foot and, and by caravan. So having an element of trust is important. Don't just give your money to anybody. Do your due diligence. If an advisor tells you that they can do something for you that just sounds good to be true, it probably is. So be skeptical, no doubt. Ask your questions. Make sure you're comfortable. But if you're unable to demonstrate the characteristics to manage your own money in the financial markets, don't just give up. Find an advisor. Your retired self will thank you for doing so. And if you do give up, you'll regret it later in life when you have no assets to retire on. Well, everybody, that's all for tonight. And that's all for this series on how to value an investment. I hope that you enjoyed it and I hope that you learned something from this series. Now, don't forget, if you're not listening to this episode from the show page, go check it out. It's macroviewnews.com, macroviewnews.com, all one word. The newest episode released is the first post every day. And subsequently, older episodes are in chronological order as you scroll down the page. So also while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to our email list so that you can get new episode notifications as soon as new episodes are released. And while you're there, do not forget if you haven't already to follow us on Twitter and Facebook, the links to which both of are on the, or at the bottom of the website. You can find them there. You can click on them. You can go and follow us. It's really easy. Now, lastly, but most importantly, most, most importantly, Please do not forget to share the macro view with your friends, with your family, with your social media networks, and wherever else you feel as though it would be appropriate so that you can help me to spread the logic of liberty. Tune back in tomorrow for another great episode. Take care, folks. You have been listening to the macro view. Tune in tomorrow night and every weeknight at 9.30 p.m. Pacific time to help spread the logic of liberty.